0: This show is brought to you by Whatever You Say Productions, starting conversations since 2018.
1: Welcome and welcome back to, what is this, episode two. I always ask, like I don't know, like I, 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 I plan coming into this, but welcome back to episode two of Microscope, season two, season episode two.
0: Two. Two, two. Two, two. so I don't know Kevin, how you been? Alright, we've been chilling on it, uh, getting back into the semester. Um, shit's getting crazy. I'm teaching a class. I'm teaching a class that I generated uh, myself on K-12 through STEM education practices.
1: I did not know this. Yeah, so Wait, I really? got to
0: reach back into my teacher training. Actually, in undergrad, I started out as a science education major. Um, so I've gotten to pull back from that kind of stuff. So that wasn't a total waste. Shout out to mom and dad for paying for that. So it didn't go to waste. <laughs> and then, yeah, so it's been fun. Uh, we have 12 students, and they're going to be mentors for after-school uh, science programs at local middle schools next oh, nice. So nice. it's a fun outreach endeavor. Um, put out by the School of Life Sciences here. Wow,
1: good for you. I feel like I have nothing to update you on. Except for I did run my timeline by my advisor last week, and my timeline has me graduating in four years, and I'm on track. So everyone
0: at home, a graduate student, have shit thought out that far ahead, this is a monumental (laughs) occasion, and this should not be taken lightly. This is very rare for someone to have it so well Thought out. (laughs) There there is a
1: difference between having it well thought out, and I just make pretty graphs that make it look like I have it thought out. That's it. No,
0: no, there isn't. There is no difference between (laughs) those two (laughs) things.
1: I just feel like I need these guidelines. Otherwise, like it's just all a fucking mess.
0: Oh yeah, that's that's my life. That's my day to day. It's all fucking mess.
1: So plan not. If you ever plan on going to graduate (laughs) school, plan out everything. That's like honestly, like that's the. Grad school isn't difficult, but it's difficult coordinating everything.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, I well, okay, there's like a thousand and one things, but like that to me is a big <laughs> yeah, thing. Yeah, that's, that's the difficult thing. All right, off topic, but so if you guys remember from season or episode one of season two, I can't believe we're on a different yeah, season it's now. Yeah, um, We we want these first four episodes to be about food, mm. and last. Or two weeks ago, we talked about the difference between organics and non-organics, and essentially, it doesn't matter, and you just need to buy it locally. That's We were kind of like, oh, let's spend 40 it. minutes telling you about all these things. I want to be see, like, they're, they're not that different. Just none of all that all. matters. <laughs> none of that matters. But so now I think we want to come from the other end. And talk about GMOs. This is a
0: big hot button issue. We have all sorts of things from all sides of – you see it at the supermarket just like we see organic certified foods. We see the um, GMO or non-GMO certified project with the little butterfly. I think that's a little insidious, putting a butterfly on that logo. I don't know what butterflies have to do with any of this. (laughs) I don't They pop it on there. It's (laughs) certified GMO free. So we just kind of wanted to unpack like what the hell does that mean? What is a GMO and how does having GMOs in our food or not affect the health and safety of our food?
1: And also I think the big thing is we want to clarify what – because a lot of people are just like nobody tests GMOs and like – no, there are it's guidelines. Not true at all. There are there are very strict guidelines that need that food needs to go through. Not even GMOs, like selective like normal food has to go through before it can go on the market. So I think we're also gonna to touch on that to sort of just like alleviate people's worries and that GMOs are like Freaking Well we'll talk about Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Right. exactly. So I think like let's just let's just get into it, right? Like what is a GMO? Okay. A GMO, according to the FDA, is a genetically modified organism. And this essentially falls into three different categories. You have transgenic, which is where they put genes from an organism that's not related to that plant into the plant. Or a crop. I think the crop is the yeah. – because they also have GMO um, – not shrimp. Salmon. Oh, Yeah, on. yeah. Okay. So th- there's transgenic, whereas you put one farly distant organism into your organism of interest. Yeah,
0: trans just meaning other. So then maybe it's a gene from a bacterium and it's going into a soybean or something. That would be a transgenic soybean.
1: Exactly. And then you have cisgenic. It's where you put a very closely related organism's gene into your crop of interest. So that's like taking... You got... species of tomato that makes really big tomatoes and you know that gene so you put that gene into another tomato Mm -hmm. essentially and then you have subgenic or subgenic which doesn't move genes between species but it literally you either turn on or off or overexpress your gene of interest in your crop
0: yeah basically what overexpress or gene expression at its core means is within the DNA of a given organism Um, it's it's telling you what are the capabilities that that organism can do, what sorts of metabolic pathways, what types of chemicals can it synthesize itself. And so to say we are overexpressing a gene means we are going to turn that gene on more than it normally would have been, which is what a subgenic, genetically modified organism would be referring to.
1: Exactly, exactly. So that's what a GMO is. A GMO is not a bunch of evil scientists. Yeah,
0: all in lab coats, crazy fucking hair. Crazy
1: hair, glasses, (laughs) walking around fields of plants, injecting stuff into every fruit or vegetable that That they see. That is the
0: greatest propaganda piece from the the anti-GMO movement, I think, just seeing, like... They'll have a hand holding an apple and a syringe with some and crazy syringes green syringes sticking yeah. in it. Yeah. Sticking in it. And then like a baby crying in the background. Like, this isn't <laughs> the food my grandparents would have eaten. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. I think, and the other thing is,
1: these genetic alterations aren't even done by injecting stuff with the syringe. It's actually done by a bacteria that lives, you know, it has always lived in connection with these plants. Actually, I think it's related to the sweet potato. Mm-hmm. I think that's where we first found this bacteria, but now we use that.
0: So it's not to say that the food you're buying at the supermarket that is ge- uh, genetic, uh, derived from a genetically modified organism is covered in this bacterium, uh, that bacterium name, if you want to look it up, Agrobacterium tumefaciens. Um, that is only required for that very initial transfer of this genetic elements from that bacterium into the plant itself. But it's not going to be present in the final product of food that you're eating whatsoever. Just to to quell that Yeah, yeah.
1: So, right, we know what a GMO is and we know what a GMO is not. But we also want to touch on the topic of selective breeding. Because I, I... they are very similar, mm-hmm. and it really comes down to how quickly we are inducing these genetic changes that alter the fruit or like the crop. Crop, I gotta say, crop.
0: Yeah, so essentially, the take home message of all of this is selective breeding has been used for thousands of years since the inception of agriculture in the human species. Uh, selective breeding has been the means by which we've taken crops, not crops, but wild plants, and domesticated them, and then selectively bred them to appease our needs as human beings. So let's take the example of the Brassica species. This is a species of plant that is the ancestor of a whole bunch of things. What was it, cauliflower, kale, what were the other ones?
1: So cauliflower, broccoli, kale, kohlrabi, brussels sprouts, and cabbage.
0: All and this those is things, all this were yeah. Derived from a single common ancestor, and obviously we've had cauliflower way longer than we've had DNA biotechnology or even known what DNA was. Cauliflower obviously predated that. So the way in which all of these different vegetables that we've enjoyed for centuries now came about was also another means of genetic modification. It was just not such a specific and precise means as DNA biotechnology but selective breeding
1: it, yeah if you ask me like it was imprecise mm-hmm. you know because i think for me wh- like when i think of like a non-gmo plant i actually think of something that's like slightly more dangerous because we have less control over what it's producing and you know how it's growing that's just like a I mean that's like a total opinion mm-hmm. there's nothing to back that up <laughs> Scientists are allowed to have opinions that have no <laughs> merit at all. Yes, to. we are just people, after all.
0: <laughs> I like to remind myself of that. But yeah, by by that uh, nature, by that definition, then all these select these plants, these crops that have been produced by selective breeding themselves are genetically modified organisms. That genetic modification is just not facilitated biotechnologically, but by selective breeding. Yeah. So really, at the end of the day, in the most technical of terms, in my opinion, again, just an opinion, you can't buy any food at the supermarket that isn't a genetically modified organism. Even your organic non-GMO corn that you buy was selectively bred from its uh, previous ancestors by Native Americans for thousands upon thousands of years before it wound up on your supermarket shelf. So yeah. that's my two cents. There's really no avoiding GMOs. And that's another reason not to be afraid of this, these fancy lingo to refer to them as genetically modified organisms.
1: Yeah, exactly. So, yes, we got GMOs, and we have selectively breeding or selectively bred, and that's really what is out on the market now. Like, honestly, for the past hundreds of years, we've only been eating selectively bred crops. Um, but, right. The one distinction we do want to make is before a crop can actually go on the market for consumer purchase, it needs to pass through rigorous testing. And that's what we really want to dig in today. Regardless if it's a genetically modified organism or if it's selectively bred, um, both of those need to go through some form of testing before they can go out to the consumer. And so I think Kevin, like, what? How long did you spend on this? Like a week? No, probably not a week. (laughs) A really long time researching this because the internet is not easy to navigate. It's not always
0: super uh, conducive to this type of research. Um, But a really awesome, great resource that I want to plug is this website called the Genetic Literacy Project. GeneticLiteracyProject.org. They have tons of very layman accessible um, articles about all sorts of topics about genetically modified organisms their safety their prevalence within the marketplace and uh, the future of it and the policy behind it and uh, one snippet I took from them here was kind of looking into what are these specific review and reference procedures that have to be undertaken in order to have a genetically modified organism sold in these supermarkets to consumers. So one little snippet I took from that read, when new traits are genetically engineered into a crop, the new plants are evaluated to to ensure that they do not have characteristics of weeds. Where biotech crops are grown in proximity to related plants, the potential for two plants to exchange traits via pollen must be evaluated before release. And this is a big thing uh, because I think this is a big worry of a lot of people is we're putting these quote unquote unnatural plants out into the environment, out into the fields of these farmers, what happens if they get out? What happens if they get into the local ecosystem that surround these agricultural areas? And how could that that have a negative effect on the plants and animals that inhabit those ecosystems? So that's just saying, this is one of the biggest concerns that they take into account Um, through the various regulatory bodies which really govern this, in in the United States at least. And in the United States at least, this regulation of genetically modified crops is a joint effort between three bodies, namely the U.S. Department of Agriculture, the Food and Drug Administration, and the Environmental Protection Agency. Obviously, the latter, the EPA, being in charge of making sure that if we grow these genetically modified organisms in a given field, what will be the effects if they spread, and how can we mitigate those harmful effects on the environment?
1: Hmm, Interesting. One thing about that though, is in both of these cases, there have been issues with even after post-production, we've seen negative effects. And this happens with non-GMO and GMO. So like one example of, I guess let's start with the GMO, is bt bt corn mm-hmm. that was like one big thing that was like really put out there it was it was put out there you know they tested it and they came back as you know this is fine this is good for it's consumers
0: for people for
1: like people this. but when they put this in the environment it actually ended up really mm-hmm. affecting the viability of monarch butterflies um n- n- not viability but like their it the numbers of monarch butterflies each year after introduction of this bt corn Mm -hmm. decreased and that mainly had to do with the fact that they're uh the aphids i think that they ate decreased so the amount of food within the environment also decreased Mm -hmm. so that was one negative effect the other is with general convention or uh with non-gmo plants like a lot of times when we plant these crops within these patches of soil they destroy the nutrients in the soil, or not destroy, they absorb all of it yeah, they so don't use them. exactly, it makes this entire region of the soil, you can't grow on it anymore, right? We've found ways to combat that and, yeah, and through
0: it, fertilizers, exactly. and through sustainable agricultural practices and
1: that's the same thing with the Bt corn, you know, we found out like oh, okay, this is affecting, so they took it off the market right, when things are bad, you end them
0: absolutely that's how regulation should occur of course right
1: especially when we don't you know like you know at the end of the day i think we said this last episode Mm -hmm. where we were just like you know at the end of the day if anything was really that harmful to the environment and to people the way food is distributed and how many people there are, we would have noticed things. Like it's not like what? Arsenic. Nobody's spraying arsenic. And if they were, (laughs) we would, we would know.
0: No matter what, even though it's totally natural. We would
1: know. We would know. So I, so let's get into like, why do, why do we make GMOs in the first place? Other than the fact that like, so a lot of these selectively bred plants are grown for specific reasons. One because, you know, they make more produce or they mature faster. Well, within the realm of genetically modified organisms, we there's essentially like two big categories for which they're modified for. One being they're tolerant to herbicides. Mm-hmm. So obviously when you're spraying a, a field and with some herbicide and you don't want to kill off all of the you know crops crops, but but you do want to kill the weeds weeds, exactly you want a plant that's going to combat that right
0: yeah so that's what we see in the glyphosate resistance or roundup resistant plants that we've heard about so much in the media the roundup ready soybeans or the roundup ready corn don't quote me on either of those but that's basically (laughs) what the idea behind it was if we can apply this one weed killer to the entire plot but we know for sure That these genetically modified food crops contain a gene that will make them resistant to that herbicide. That is a very highly effective way um, to combat weed innervation of our agricultural plots. And that is another way genetically modified organisms can combat the use of uh, the copious use of pesticides and herbicides. If we have a plant that is resistant to a very powerful herbicide then we can just use a very little bit of that herbicide on the entire plot and then overall our resource usage usage is less our carbon footprint is less from the production of that herbicide and therefore that is one of the many ways genetically modified organisms can make for a more sustainable agricultural process
1: exactly and just some of the like types of um crops that are already on the market and have been used in the market um, are like so. One, oh, I clicked on the link. Damn it. Okay, <laughs> it took me away. So, so two, two, you know, two big things are actually canola oil, um, and that was actually approved in 1995. Oh, shit. Uh, 1995 in both Canada and the USA. I felt
0: like we weren't even having this conversation back in. 99. We weren't. Having... I was fucking four, so I don't know.
1: Yeah, we probably were. But and so I don't know if anybody. So canola oil is um, I don't know I feel like anytime you ever bake like a Betty Crocker box of like
0: yeah cake. calls for canola. Oil.
1: Yeah, it calls for canola oil or like any oil but like you use canola oil because, <laughs> because it's <laughs> cheap. It's
0: cheap and we're graduate students and we can't afford fancy. Exactly.
1: Milk, and the other thing is like sugar beets. You know, and a lot of that yeah, yeah. Um, that was approved in the USA in 1998 and in Canada in 2001. Um, and I do want to point out So sugar beets were on the market uh, in two thousand. They were commercialized in two thousand and seven, but then we stopped production in two thousand and ten because there was a study that came out that like contradicted what we thought was happening. But then more research that went into it, it was fine. You know, we found out that that, you know nothing was really going wrong, and it went back to being in two thousand eleven. So. There's always steps and bounds that go into not just GMOs, but all foods that are on the market. This
0: is the system of checks and balances that the scientific enterprise affords to society purely by its nature. We are constantly finding new ways to probe things, constantly testing new ideas. Here's an example of one thing was tested and it was found to be, oh, this isn't okay And then another study came along with more rigor or more different ways of looking at this situation and found that, in fact, maybe that last study wasn't so great. That's just how the scientific method goes. Everything is constantly under review. Everything things are constantly overturned no matter how long they have been thought to have been true or if they're part of what is considered to be common knowledge. That doesn't matter. What matters is the data and the interpretation of that data.
1: Hmm. Interesting herbicide tolerance and then there's also tolerance or production of some insecticide Mm -hmm. right so like a big thing is the pest eating the plants but what if it eats the plants that has a chemical for that insect and it dies right like that helps increase yield of these plants and just some examples of these are I love my list that I made these are great (laughs) um I so Cotton, right? We all know what cotton is used for. Um, fiber, like if you have an old cotton clothes, like most of those are GMO cottons. And then also, which I thought was really interesting, was eggplant, and that's only a- that. yeah. that's only in pr- uh, approved in Bangladesh. Yeah, yeah.
0: Bangladesh, they're getting a the leg up. We gotta, we gotta catch up.
1: We gotta catch up. Honestly, I really like eggplant because like an eggplant farm oh or so like good. an eggplant
0: uh, yeah. eggplant lasagna. Oh, Chinese food right now. I know what
1: well, I was it last episode where I talked about being Italian? Yes. I've like <laughs> I've started oh big things about what's happened in my life. I bake bread and make pasta now. Damn.
0: Well I like
1: wanna bread. make pasta. I've made bread. It takes a long fucking time. It just it takes, takes a, a, long a prohibitively time. long amount of yeah. time. But it's like fun. I mean what else am I gonna do? I can't spend money. I don't want to go out. <laughs> Of my I, idea. Flower. I could buy flour. Draw them out and put them on the hangers. And... Exactly. Yeah. Plus it's in Arizona, so it's super fucking dry. Those yeah. things dry up like that. <laughs> um, so yeah, those are like the two big things. Um, well, one's big, cotton, right? But eggplant I thought was interesting and I didn't know. Um, and there's actually like on uh, what was the website you gave everybody? The Genetic Literacy
0: Project. Yeah,
1: they have a whole list of genetically modified uh, organisms that are on the market. Take that into note, that means if somebody or if some product has that it's non-GMO, but it's like...
0: There isn't even a GMO version of that on the market. What the hell are they saying? They're trying
1: to sell you something. Yeah,
0: for instance, one thing I came across right now was uh, Himalayan pink salt verified non-GMO. And if you think about salt itself... It's just literally a mineral. It's not even derived from an organism of any kind. <laughs> so, to say that your it salt up is a non genetically modified organism, that's obviously just trying to bank off of this uh, kind of aversion to genetically modified organism. Derived foods are bad for me. Therefore, I should only buy that. Only buy that if that has the sticker. Oh shit, they got salt that has that sticker. I need that salt. It's better for me, even though it's a completely ridiculous claim to have that. Yeah, exactly.
1: And then right, so there's the herbicides, there's the insecticides, and then there's like an other category. And some of these that are on the market, um I'll talk about two of them first. And this last one I thought was like it's good for us, it's good for us. And I'll tell you about it. So papaya is actually uh there's a class of Papayas that are genetically modified And those are to prevent infection of a virus Mm -hmm. um, That would cause blight throughout the fields Um, There's also movements to genetically modified tobacco That has less nicotine Which would make the nicotine Because with less nicotine it's less addictive which is wow. interesting because I feel like that goes against everything the tobacco industry.
0: Yeah, they would want that to have a hell of a yeah. nicotine. They could overexpress that nicotine synthesis pathway and exactly. just go crazy with it. But obviously the USDA, EPA, and FDA in conjunction all have a hand in the regulation of this. And hopefully at this point in our cultural evolution they would say maybe it's not such a great idea to have super high nicotine tobacco that was genetically engineered to be so. I <laughs> mean, yeah, this nicotine reduction. Maybe then you could have instead of the nicotine patch for quitting, mm-hmm. you could just have cigarettes that were a lower and lower nicotine level And so, I don't know. That's what I try to market with that. I'd probably sell more cigarettes yeah, than those yeah. patches because they're. That's
1: probably patches. where it's coming from. It's mm-hmm. like the the tobacco industry is fueling it, so they can say like reduced nicotine cigarettes or something. Exactly. Although is there any regulations to prevent them from advertising that anyway? I don't know.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's the problem. Out.
1: A lot of it is like an advertising. Advertising doesn't have these regulations. These regulations of fact checking and peer review that yeah, scientific literature has. Yeah.
0: What would our world be like if it did? That
1: uh, could be another episode. Maybe another episode. We literally have a list of like 30 episodes. Yes. Get ready, guys. Yeah. Stay seated. (laughs) But so – and then this last one is – doesn't have to do with insecticides. Doesn't have to do with herbicides. Doesn't even have to do with like increasing the nutrient content of it. But look it up. When you fry or bake potatoes – the there's a certain starch in there that after when it gets heated to a certain temperature it changes that it causes a chemical reaction that turns that starch into acrylamide which is a cancer causing compound it this is like a well-known cancer causing compound and it's probably linked to like oh my god wow now i feel weird about saying this but like you could probably say like a lot of the people who eat a lot of fast food and eat a lot of those potatoes are probably getting cancer from the acrylamide in the potatoes. We should Again, delete that. That was so anecdotal. And that's a hypothesis. though. That's so a right hypothesis. That stated, that's a I hypothesis. Can test not
0: it. a fact, but it is a testable hypothesis.
1: Yeah, I'm building on peer-reviewed information from there. But so, like, it's well known that acrylamide is really bad for people cancer-causing agent and is found in the cooking of potatoes. Well, there's a new potato on the market. that is GMO potato that is missing the enzymes that produce this starch. So these cooked potatoes don't have this cancer-causing agents in it anymore, which is kind of exciting. We're actually, this is like turning like a food that I know a lot of Americans do we had french fries for lunch today
0: right now
1: we can have french fries and only worry about our waistline not <laughs> cancer not <laughs> the cancer-causing agents in it not that anybody really thought about potatoes or french fries is giving them cancer but it's also like a dosage level like i'm not saying you eat fried potatoes you're, getting, you're cancer. getting cancer yeah exactly yeah
0: all that comes into account And that's another thing to point out here is another um point from that from the genetic literacy project website right is to really consider that we're not always engineering something completely novel into these organisms but more so making a trait that they have um, either more impactful or less impactful to the overall nutrition or value of that of that crop plant Um, and they said to put these considerations in perspective it's useful to note that while the particular biotech traits being used are often new to crops In that they often do not come from plants Uh, many of these uh, traits come from bacteria or viruses Uh, the same basic types of traits are often found naturally in most plants Uh, for instance like the things we said like insect or disease resistance drought resistance all of these are traits that to some degree are present in the native plants that these transgenic genetically modified organisms are being derived from that's to say we're not putting like eyeballs or crazy other sensory organs or crazy uh, attributes into plants that were so outside the realm of what we conventionally think of as a plant Um, we're just kind of making them either have a higher yield or be a little more resistant to this specific type of aphid or things like that it's much more incremental Um, and that's not just a point of we don't want to make this so new and scary it's gonna scare away consumers it's really much more of a this is very fucking technically difficult to even change these in a slight way. Yeah. And have it be a sustainable, reproducible situation. Um it just comes down to this stuff's hard. <laughs>
1: yeah, I mean it and also think about it like from like conception to like them going on the market, that's like twenty years. Yeah. That's like twenty years of research and contemplating. I mean, like Kevin has been here for, what are you on your fourth year or fifth year? Fifth year. Fifth year. And he's trying to put one gene in one bacteria. Or am I getting it wrong? (laughs) Not quite. Okay. But this is
0: something I did want to bring up of how the genetically modified organisms are regulated in the real world. I can actually speak to that because I actually had to deal uh, directly with the U.S. Department of Agriculture to actually import a genetically modified bacterial strain. Um, So the reason I had to deal with them for that process was because the natural form of this bacterium is actually helpful in the root microbiome of certain uh, soybean crops and other kinds of legumes. And the mutations that uh, these genetically modified varieties of this original type were derived from, had to go through a very extensive vetting process in that um, my advisor and I had to fill out all sorts of forms saying we were not going to release these these microbes into the environment. These were going to be kept in a laboratory environment where they were going to be under tight control. It was going to make sure nothing uh, was going to basically get out into the environment and potentially overrun the natural population of these specific microorganisms. Even though these mutant ones were a lot less a fit because the mutation made them susceptible to predation by this little worm that also lives in the environment. Um, so even if these mutants got out, they would get eaten way more easily than their natural counterpart would. Um, but all in all, that process took probably about six months of back and forth paperwork and again, this was just to import those strains from the United Kingdom to the United States. If we were to have proposed that we were going to do an experiment which involved inoculating an actual agricultural field with this transgenic bacterium, I wouldn't be surprised if that process took twice as long. Um, so that's just to kind of put it in a time perspective of how rigorously regulated genetically modified organisms are at least by the U.S. Department of Agriculture.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and I also do want to point out, because um, while Kevin was talking, I was looking up other super cool GMO plants, and there's one called the Arctic apple, which doesn't brown. Dang. They took out that gene so it doesn't brown. Um, and that actually came about because like, it's a way to deter food wastefulness. Yeah. Because usually when people see a brown apple, they just like throw it away, even though it's fine. Like now if it doesn't brown, they're less likely to throw it away. Mind you, there's also the issue of just like, well, is it good enough? Because that browning, you know, like the more brown it is, like, it's it is using
0: bacterial exactly
1: Or oxidation. Of, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but exactly. Okay. As we like to do here on Microscope is we like to tell you about some study that was conducted. And what better way to talk to have the Italian talk about GMOs than this group of Italians in Lombardo, Italy that did this open field trial of genetically modified parthenocarpic tomatoes. Yes, a bunch of Italians did a study on GMO tomatoes. Make your jokes if you want. (laughs) And also the lead author is Giuseppe Leonardo Rotino. Love him. Can't wait to meet you guys. Although it'll probably never happen. But okay, so let's break this down. What they essentially wanted to do is, their big questions in like the realm of genetically modified plants is, you know, whether genetically modified organisms differ from their non-genetically modified counterparts and are they safe to the environment based on both gene flow and seed dispersal and so they took two different um non-gmo tomatoes which both produce seeds and are both already in the market and compared them to two seedless tomatoes um, that they genetically modified and their seedless which is the same thing as parthenocarpic, which essentially means they make these fruiting bodies regardless if they've been uh, fertilized or not because you need that fertilization to make seeds. And so they grew them within the same field and they measured their growth over the course of... Oh, where does it say? it? One, two, three, four, five, six... Oh. From May 14th until August 27th 16 weeks probably should have done that math before, but that's okay. Not all scientists are good at math. I'm really bad at it. I need a calculator to do like 1 plus 10 or something. it's like kind of embarrassing. okay, but essentially you know they, they come you know they grew them both in the same field and they wanted to understand sort of like, the yield that they got back from these plants um, in terms of like not ripe ones, ripe ones, and rotten ones. And there really was no difference between the yields and the plants Surprisingly, uh, one of the non-GMO plants actually had the lowest yield and the most rotten plants, which I thought was interesting. Yeah. Um, even though there's very few genes that are changed between the two of these.
0: Yeah, and none of those genes that were specifically changed were meant to either increase yield or decrease ripening. Time. Exactly. This not exactly. A target of the study. No.
1: Yeah. The target was literally they eliminated they. They made fruiting bodies without fertilization. That was like the gene that they changed. In fact, specifically. They say the gene is DEF H9 minus RI minus III or IAAM gene version. Okay, so overall, there was no difference in yield. Um, then they looked at, of course, nutrient quality, right? <clears throat> and they didn't find really any differences in terms of the citric acid in it, the tartic acid, uh, vitamin C. Uh, Beta carotene, um, lycopene, which I'm pretty sure we all know, with lycopene that's like cancer co- or cancer
0: inhibiting. It's like an
1: antioxidant that like they tell you to eat tomatoes because it's got lycopene in it. But there was really no difference between any um, of these. They it was also interesting when you look at these studies that are done on food. They like really sp- they really give specific values for things like. They looked at shape index. They looked at puffiness. Hmm. They looked at number of vacuoles, which I don't even know what an vacuole is. Yeah, no, that has something to do with like a tomato. <laughs> and the vacuole is the number of small separate cavities in oh, a oh, tomato. Oh, Interesting. Interesting. Look, you you learn something
0: new every Innocule. day. <laughs> yeah. yeah, part of the tomato that doesn't have the fleshy part. Exactly,
1: although of course the it was different between the fruits that or the fruits that had seeds and the fruits that didn't have seeds. Mm-hmm. And obviously, the ones that were genetically engineered to not produce seeds had less seeds uh, in them. But when it comes down to like their actual conclusion in terms of like the nutrient availability, the um, yield from these, you know, they specifically say that the biochemical and technological analysis performed on the GMO and the non-GMO fruits
0: showed very little uh, variation um, within this species. So that's very cool because now we have a species of tomato that is almost identical to the original natural form of it, except it doesn't make these seeds. Now, going from this seedless tomato, what we could do is uh, genetically modify it to increase yield, to increase vitamin content, to increase other nutrient contents. But if we start with this seedless variety, we can be sure that at least we're going to avoid the environmental impact of having this uh, genetically modified species spread out into the environment because it doesn't have seeds it's not able to go through that kind of dispersal mechanism that natural plants would be. So having a seedless variety of say the tomato or any other kind of vegetable or fruit that would be on your your farm stand market there. If we start with that, we can now have a basic chassis from which to engineer all sorts of crazy stuff, but we we no longer have to worry about that spreading into the environment and interfering with other natural species of plants and animals because we have very tight control over its dispersal because it does not have these seeds. So that's why I think, to me, that was the biggest takeaway from this study. And it was a bunch of Italians
1: that ate tomatoes. (laughs) (laughs) I liked that. But so, right, like we like like to do here on Microscope is we like to close off with telling you guys something that you know, you the big take home and what you should do at home. And I think hopefully it's hopefully you're getting out of this last episode and this episode is it's really just like educating yourself and understanding like real differences, whether they exist or whether they don't. And I think your homework or like what you can do at home is check out the food literacy project. Mm-hmm.
0: Go Genetic on. Literacy Project. Oh
1: genetic literacy project.org. Dot dot org. So don't listen to me, listen to Kevin. <laughs> but yeah, I think going on there and just exploring the information they have, like we vetted them, they are, we trust the information that they put out, like because we we've we've peer reviewed them.
0: Yeah, so the Genetic Literacy Project is really a great resource. They have all their uh, citations, all their references cited, and they really do borrow from um, a lot of governmental. Uh, regulatory agencies to write their content and kind of just inform the public about the nature of genetically modified organisms and the article i was citing from a reading from directly today was actually authored by alan McEwen. he's a public sector educator and scientist and consumer advocate at the university of california riverside so this is information that is being vetted by people who are in the academic field Um, To look at the crossplay between the scientific community and the culture at large about genetically modified organisms, especially in food crops. So, genetically, uh, geneticliteracyproject.org, great resource. Their tagline is fucking sweet Genetic (laughs) Literacy Project, science, not ideology. Not ideology. I I could get that. that tattooed on my fucking face. That's something you can do if
1: you do choose to. I won't look at you any different. Thanks. So that concludes episode two of Microscope. Thank you all for joining in and have a good whatever you're doing while you're listening to
0: us. Thanks for (laughs) listening to us. Do whatever you're doing. Take it easy. Thank you for listening to Microscope presented by Whatever You Say Productions. Learn more at MicroscopePodcast.com. That's M-I-K-R-O-S-C-O-P-E-P-O-D-C-A-S-T dot
1: com.